Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd with me, Hannah Crosby. We're delighted to be recording our second series right here in our historic home in St. James's. Together, we'll be uncorking and discussing the wines our experts have pilled from their own collections, each from a wine region you may not have discovered, but undoubtedly deserves to be on your radar. For this episode, I'm joined by Barbara Drew MW and Sebastian Balcom from our buying team to discuss the fascinating wines of Australia. Misconceptions abound when it comes to Australian wine. They're often dismissed as too big, too alcoholic or too oaky. But today, over a bottle of estate vineyard Chardonnay from famed producer Gioconda, we'll help dispel those myths as our experts illustrate why there are many Australian wines that deserve a place in your cellar. Barbara, Sebastian, thank you so much for sitting down with me to discuss why we should all be collecting Australian wine. Seb, your career at Berry Brothers and Rudd has seen you move from starting in our London shop to working now under Philip Moulin, our wine authentication expert. But your journey into the wine world actually started not so far from Australia, is that right? Uh, yeah, I was travelling after university mm-hmm. uh, and I got a job at Cloudy Bay in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Just by pure chance. From there, I, I realised I quite like wine and mm. I could see myself having, <laughs> having, having some sort of career in it. How so did you find out about the job? I went to a library in Marlborough okay. and I googled Cloudy Bay jobs. <laughs> You're joking. Uh, because, because it was my dad's favourite wine and it was the oh, okay. one thing I sort of knew about the region out there. Uh-huh. And I knew I wanted to work in the South Island doing something you couldn't really do back in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I went to the library. Google Cloudy Bay Jobs and they had a job going on their cellar door and two interviews and two weeks later and then a visit to a shop to buy some shirts. Mm-hmm. I had a job on the cellar door. Amazing. Um, it was fantastic. And yeah. here you are. And what year did you start working for us at Barry Brothers and Rose? Uh 2017, October 2nd. Oh, So wow. I started in the shop. And now you're working with Philip Mulan. Part-time, yes. Yes. Uh, currently my full-time role, I'm on the buying team. And what does much. a day with a wine authentication expert look like? Uh, it varies. It uh-huh. could be looking at sort of high-res photos of a particular wine to make sure that it's all above board or mm-hmm. you could be in a, in the warehouse again looking at particular bottles of wine or in someone's cellar or quite recent last week we were at number three where we are now going through the family reserves wines uh, some of the some of the older wines going through them checking the quality that's so fascinating very jealous and barbara we've had you on the podcast before but could you briefly reintroduce yourself to our listeners so i started with barry brothers and rudd in 2011 whoa so i've been here for over a decade now and my current role is as content officer and i want to take a second to talk about this amazing room we're recording in so we're actually recording the second series as i've said from our historic home in St. James's so if you can hear the buzz of St. James's traffic or the occasional bell ring it's because we're recording in a working shop so Seb this room that we're in right now is the merchant's room Mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about its history 
Yeah. So where we are now in St. James's, 100 metres to our left is St. James's Palace. Mm -hmm. Prior to being St. James's Palace, it was, uh, well, at the very beginning, it was a uh, leper colony. Mm -hmm. Then it was a nunnery. Mm -hmm. And then it was um, sort of Henry VIII's love nest for him and Anne Boleyn. Oh, really? Yeah. So talk about gentrification. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But where we're sitting now... Obviously, you can't see it's a podcast, but <laughs> there are timbers in the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the last remaining pieces yeah. of, of, of Henry VIII's um, tennis court. So it'd be r- real tennis. Mm-hmm. So where we're sitting now is where the King of England used to play tennis. So um, Amazing. This room has a huge amount of history. Barbara, moving back to the reason we're recording this podcast, the amazing world of Australian wine. You've been to Australia a few times, but could you tell us about the first time that you visited? As some of uh, our listeners may know, I'm a complete wine nerd and <laughs> I was lucky enough to win uh, the Wine Australia Scholarship for my diploma exams. So this is the Mm. sort of the gold standard qualification in the wine industry. And I first went out to Australia in 2015 Mm -hmm. uh, as a guest of Wine Australia for a two week trip. I'd never been to the country before and it really opened my eyes. Mm. I was absolutely blown away by the wines, but also the scenery, the food, the coffee. I'm not even a coffee drinker, but I was (laughs) mainlining coffee for the entire fortnight. That could be because the jet lag was so appalling, (laughs) but it really was an incredible trip. And for me, Mm. it just cemented my love of Australian wine. Yeah, whereabouts did you visit? Which regions? So we started in Adelaide Mm -hmm. and went straight to the really iconic regions, the Barossa Valley, Mm -hmm. Eden and Clare Valleys. And in fact, I remember pretty much the first visit we did was at Henschke, uh, this magnificent historical winery that produces the most beautiful uh, wines from Shiraz. And sitting in the winery, tasting Hill of Grace, which is their iconic Shiraz wine with the winemaker, Prue Henschke. Um, It was just an utterly stunning experience, you know, Mm. one that I'll never forget. And I thought, wow, this, that would probably be my desert island wine. It was so beautiful. And then we headed on down to Victoria. So we took in the Yarra Valley, uh, Mornington Peninsula, those areas around Melbourne. And then since then, I've been lucky enough to go back to the country and travel to the Hunter Valley, Mm -hmm. Tasmania, Western Australia. So really ticking off as many of those You really have. You really have. And it's definitely a full circle moment. So Barbara, you're clearly very, very passionate about the wines of Australia, but you're also very passionate about debunking myths when it comes to Australian wine. So many kind of pass it off as being too big, too heavy, oaky or unsubtle. What's the reality? I'll be the first to admit that I was one of those people before I started in the wine trade and really learning about Australian wine. I thought that most Australian wines were really full-bodied, very Mm oaky, very alcoholic. What I discovered when I traveled there is that the variety is second to none. Mm. I think as a country, Australia produces the widest range and the most interesting array of styles that Mm -hmm. it's possible to produce. There are absolutely some 
warming full-bodied wines ones that are really going to warm your cockles on a cold winter's night but you can get incredibly delicate and um, really quite low alcohol wines mm-hmm. wines made from really novel grape varieties it's not just about the chardonnay and the mm-hmm. shiraz anymore uh, we're starting to see lots more mediterranean grape varieties producers are really looking at these mediterranean grapes so tempranillo for sure Tariga nacional uh, Nebbiolo for the white grapes you're seeing, you know, Assertico being planted. Mm. In fact, many of those do far better in the warmer Mediterranean climates of Australia than, for example, Chardonnay or Sauvignon really? Blanc. Sebastian, hi. We, hi. We gave you the task of bringing in a bottle that helps us better understand Australian wine that encapsulates everything you love about the winemaking country. You've told me before about just how much you adore a rich yet nuanced Chardonnay. And I think you've nailed that with this bottle. What are we going to be drinking? Uh, so today we are going to be opening and drinking or tasting a bottle of 2013 uh, Gioconda Estate Vineyard Chardonnay. Australia, I think, has a real reputation for producing overly oaked and rich, heavy Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And today the majority of wines that berries sell, on, I think, are the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. They're terroir-focused, quite linear, very pure, fruit-driven, and delicious wines. Mm -hmm. But I say, I mean, I I really like the richer, sort of more hedonistic, Mm -hmm. unrestrained styles that have the acidity to keep them in check. I'll be perfectly honest, I'm struggling to find the perfect descriptor that won't be edited out here, but this is really, really delicious yeah this is what i want from a glass of chardonnay <laughs> i haven't tasted it yet but already it just you know it smells immensely pleasing i'm actually not going to taste it as well i think what's important to highlight here is this wine comes from 2013 so it's nine nine and a half years old people assume that um, wines particularly australian wines australian white wines uh, will not age that well This is a fantastic example of how very wrong they are. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a beautiful golden colour, but Mm. absolutely the colour that should be expected at this age. And the aromas, there's still so much fruit there. Mm. And lots of ripe sort of melon, lots of ripe tropical fruit. There's a smokiness. And there's definitely some oak here, but the oak doesn't overwhelm the flavours. And to your point about the richness, said there there is that creaminess that smoothness it's 14 percent mm. alcohol this is not a shy wine by nope. any means no. but everything is perfectly in balance it's not overwhelming and the alcohol is beautifully integrated mm. and you know this is a wine that you could easily keep for another 10 years if you wanted mm. but drinks perfectly right now i think when you said um people assume that you can't age white wine or, or australian wines I think that just applies to perhaps New World wines in general, not just white wines, red wines as well. Mm. Lunch today, we, we were very fortunate to try a bottle of 95 Hill of Grace, which is fantastic. But And everyone's sort of there thinking like, wow, I've never tried a Hill of Grace that old before. But if you were to put a bottle of 95 Bordeaux, first, second, third, fourth, fifth growth on the table, it'd be sort of, that, that's, um, that's the norm. Yeah. Whereas a 95 wine from California, Australia, New Zealand, mm-hmm. South America, it, it really turns heads because... No one is aging these wines. It's only a, re- a recent phenomenon that we we are starting to age these wines and, and take them much more seriously. Mm. Um, but they are immensely serious wines that can go the mile and then some. Yeah. 
we've talked about the wine and just how much we're enjoying, like the flavors and the complexity, but let's talk a bit more about the producer. Barbara, what about Gioconda makes them such a benchmark winemaker? A really good question because they are based in an area of Australia that is perhaps a little less well known. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a producer, they're not based in sort of the Yarra Valley or Margaret River where you might expect fantastic Chardonnays to come from. Uh, They're actually based at the foot of the Victorian Alps. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about 200 kilometers inland from Melbourne. And what you often learn when you're studying your wine qualifications (laughs) is that many of the best wine regions in Australia are around the coast. Mm -hmm. And actually inland tends to be where you get uh, more of the sort of large volume, uh, relatively inexpensive production. But here, um, the rocks, you've got sort of 450 million year old soils, which are really broken down to give Mm. you all sorts of uh, interesting minerals there. And the altitude, you've got about four to 500 meters altitude in these alpine valleys that provide a wonderful microclimate. Mm. So you get cool evenings that stop the grapes from getting overripe. And as a result, this wine has got a beautiful freshness. It's not an aggressive acidity, but this lovely persistent mouth-watering character Mm. that balances the ripe fruit. Um, Really, really beautiful. It's brilliant. Listeners may have noticed that when we opened this wine, instead of the satisfying pop of a cork, we heard the crackle of a screw cap. So the New World is known for its use of the screw cap, but Barbara, we know that while this might be associated with low quality wines, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? Absolutely not. Um, Whilst I, you know, I love the tradition and the ritual of pulling a cork out of the bottle or often in my case, making a complete hash of it and ending up with bits <laughs> of cork everywhere. Uh, screw caps absolutely have their place and they have really um, taken off in Australia and New Zealand in particular. And the reason is that cork can very, very occasionally harbour a little microorganism that can create uh, this compound called cork taint. Mm-hmm. And that can make your wine smell and taste a little bit damp and musty. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly rare these days. However, screw caps help to eliminate that problem. Mm-hmm. That's why they were first brought onto the scene. But producers have since discovered that there are myriad benefits Mm. to having a synthetic closure. Mm -hmm. Now, cork is a wonderful natural substance. Personally, I think we should do an entire podcast episode on cork because it's just (laughs) very, very cool. It's the only natural (laughs) substance. You can compress it in one dimension and it won't expand in the other. It's lightweight. Um, The ecology of the cork forest is absolutely fascinating. However, it is ultimately a natural product. And what that means is there will be tiny variations between one cork and the next. If you're looking at a wine that's going to age for a couple of years, that's not a problem. But for a wine that might age for 50 years or more, you'll see that two bottles might have some very subtle differences between Mm -hmm. them because of the natural variation in the cork. Mm -hmm. With a screw cap, that simply doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the technology now is such that you can choose how much oxygen might get into your wine based on the liner of the screw cap and so on and so forth. Uh, So in many ways, there are huge benefits to them. Certainly in Australia, there will be nothing, you know, no one would bat an eyelid if you ordered a wonderful fine wine in a restaurant and the sommelier came over and just 
opened it just as we've done (laughs) and with that crackle of Mm. screw cap. Well, it's clear that having a screw cap isn't necessarily an indicator of bad quality. In fact, there can be just as many wines with a screw cap as there can cork that are world-class. So we can definitely see in our glasses that Chardonnay thrives in the Australian climate. But Barbara, what other varieties do particularly well? And this can be red or white wines. I think there's a reason why we are so familiar with the classic Australian grape varieties. Chardonnay, Shiraz in particular, that does so well in the diversity of climates in this country. You get rich hedonistic examples from the Barossa Valley through to really spicy, peppery examples from the Hunter and around Canberra. But for me, it's the Mediterranean grape varieties that are starting to make inroads Mm. in the country that are particularly exciting. Things like Nero d'Avila and things like Nebbiolo. There's some beautiful Nebbiolo wines coming out of the Yarra Valley at the moment. Uh, White grape varieties such as Assertico. We're starting to see more Spanish grape varieties being planted uh, like Godello and Albarino. And these show real potential in the often warm, sometimes even hot, dry climates of the Australian wine regions. Wow. Uh, I would just add to that, I think one great variety that you find all over the world, but Australia does so uniquely is Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. When it shows well there, it's absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like no other Cabernet Sauvignon. It's um, it's very smooth and supple and quite chocolatey, but, but it has mm-hmm. wonderful undertones of, of sort of menthol and eucalyptus, mm-hmm. and there's nothing else quite like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one region to watch and we're seeing more and more of is, is uh, our wines from Tasmania. Mm-hmm. People often forget it's part of Australia. Very cool climate, um, especially um, cool climate Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but mm-hmm. especially Pinot Noir, which mm. is notoriously a very fussy grape, does very well in Tasmania. Mm. Um, I think it's quite hard to find excellent Pinot Noir outside of Burgundy. And Tasmania is one of those places where you, you can find very, mm. very good Pinot Noir. I would agree. And the Chardonnay as well, a very different style to the one that we are tasting today. But for example, Tollpuddle um, Vineyard makes mm. one of my all-time favourite Chardonnay wines. Um, it's actually made by Shore and Smith. So they make this mm. in the Adelaide Hills and they get the fruit from Tasmania. And it's got this wonderful seam of freshness going through it and this real struck match character, incredibly elegant, fantastically age-worthy. Definitely one of my one of my all-time favourites. I mean, um, even Penfolds now, they source wines from, Austria, from Tasmania as well. But when you said Giaconda are based in the Victorian foothills, one of the great advantages there is that it's much cooler. So you, mm-hmm. you, you have this richness in the wine, but it has that sort of mouth-watering acidity that keeps the wine very fresh and, and in check. Because as much as I like richness, you don't want sort of unchecked richness, you, mm. you, you know, too much of a good thing, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's clear that Australian climates can provide like the proper conditions to give proper character and precision to single varietal wines. We just mentioned Penfolds there. Australian wine is also known for its rich and powerful blends. Barbara, just how much interest should collectors show to these blends? I think blends are a really important part of Australian wine. Mm -hmm. There are absolutely the grape blends, the varietal blends. So for example, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon. Um, I think that Australia makes some of the best Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon blends in the world. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, Brokenwood up in Hunter Valley making exquisite um, example of this, sort of a white Bordeaux style. Uh, Cullen in Margaret River, gorgeous Sauvignon Semillon blend. For the reds, Penfolds in particular, blending Cabernet, Sauvignon and Shiraz. 
But for me, what's more important than the grape blends is the regional blends. Mm. And this is something that is really unique to Australia. There are very few wine producing countries in the world that will blend grapes from different regions. And yet Penfold's Grange, arguably the first growth of Australia, the most iconic wine, is a blend of Shiraz from lots of different regions all across South Australia. Mm -hmm. You've got the McLaren Vale fruit, which gives you uh, this wonderful sort of richness, the Barossa Valley fruit, which gives you a roundness and a suppleness. Uh, You have sort of the acidity and complexity coming through Mm -hmm. there. And the fact that this um, most important wine, this incredibly age-worthy wine, this very, very collectible wine, absolutely iconic, blends fruit from all over, Mm -hmm. I think shows that there are other ways of making wine. It's mm. not just about a single grape from a single vineyard in a single year, mm. which to me is really cool. It turns the idea that quality has to come from a, a site-specific, you know, a very small area, mm. totally on its head. And you just briefly mentioned ageing potential there, Barbara. What sort of ageing potential can we expect from these fine Australian wines? Are they made mostly to drink now or is there a bit of ageing potential behind them? I think there is a misconception that because these wines are so delicious when they're young, Mm. that that means they cannot age. And that's simply not true. We're already starting to see in Bordeaux that it's possible to make fruitier, richer styles of wine that have the potential to age. Mm Australia has been doing that for decades. So, you know, Penfold's wines, Grange as an example, you absolutely can enjoy it young. There's so much fruit there, so much richness. However, the aging potential is as good, if not better, than many of the Bordeaux first growths. You know, the top, top wines really just keep going. How long are we talking? I mean, I've been, I've been lucky enough to taste some of the very first vintages uh, wow. of Grange so you know certainly going back to the 60s and these yeah these wines are really 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 beautiful it, it all sort of goes back to, to the customer and how you like to drink your wine if you mm-hmm. like your wine to be fresher more fruit forward drink it younger but if you want it to be sort of uh, more nuanced and develop sort of different flavors in the bottle patience will, will, will reward you sort of mm-hmm. um, enormously mm-hmm. but I think as well the reason why especially Australian wines have historically been more approachable from a younger a younger age is that Australian wines first started really appearing en masse into the British market in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And that was also a time when wine drinkers in this country moved away from the historical sort of trend of you buy a case of wine, mm-hmm. you receive it two to three years later, you store it in your cellar for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I mean, I know barely anyone who has a cellar in their house now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people wanted to drink wine sooner and I think Australian winemakers were very receptive to that and made a made a style of wine that, yes, could be aged for decades, but also would be approachable from a, from a younger age. Mm. And yeah. its ageability is something that can vary from vintage to vintage. Yeah. But Australia kind of has a reputation for being incredibly hot and unforgiving. But vintage variation is actually something that's mattering more and more to producers, right, Barbara? Absolutely. There is still very much that perception that many of the, the wine-producing regions are you know, hot, almost desert-like 
climates. And certainly if you go out into the vineyards in the Barossa Valley in the middle of a summer's day, um, you're going to need some sunscreen and some sunnies. It's going to be hot. <laughs> Equally, I have been in some vineyards in Tasmania and I've needed gloves and a hat. And there are definitely <laughs> parts of this country um, that have incredibly cool climates there. So for example, Tasmania, vintage is really going to depend on whether there is sufficient sun, sufficient warmth mm -hmm. to get the fruit ripe enough um, to make sure that the wine has got sufficient body and flavor. At the same time in the Barossa, you might be looking at whether it's a vintage where the summer is a bit cooler, whether you've got enough water to mm. really support the vines and help to ripen those grapes. So such a huge country. Mm. Uh, and I recall flying there, you sort of, you fly over and you see land below you and you think, ah, oh, my long journey is almost at an end. Four and a half hours later, you've still not touched down <laughs> at an airport. And I think sometimes in Europe, we can we can forget the scale um, of the regions mm. here. Yeah, there are some, some parts of the country where hot, dry summers can be incredibly detrimental mm. to the grapes and making sure that there's sufficient coolness, sufficient water mm -hmm. is vital in a vintage. There is a hole in the ozone layer above Australia and New Zealand, and that does mean that the grapes ripen much, much more quickly sometimes. I think you certainly see um, often very ripe um, what we would call phenolics. Mm -hmm. So these are things like tannins, colour compounds in the skins of the grapes. And that can really give you that velvety, lush texture mm. that you mm -hmm. so often find in Australian reds can be a good thing. But of course, overripeness is something producers are constantly having to battle in the warmer regions. You have these really, really hot days, which can very ripe wines, but the ideal combination is to have a really cold night, a high diurnal range, which then gives the wine um, acidity and coolness and, and, and balances that ripeness mm. and that heavy alcohol. I know that many spots in Australia have that perfect blend of hot days, but really, really cool nights where you need to get a coat out and gloves and a hat <laughs> and a scarf. Barbara, is it just the hidden gem regions like we're mentioning, um, Geocondas and Beechworth? Should we be paying attention to those or should collectors focus on the well-known regions too? I think it depends a little bit what style of wine it is you, you prefer. If it's sparkling wine that you're after, head to Tasmania. Mm -hmm. um, I think one region that occasionally gets overlooked is Margaret River. Mm -hmm. So this is way out um, in Western Australia, really quite removed from most of the other uh, well-known wine regions. And it produces truly exquisite Chardonnays, not quite as rich as those from South Australia or Victoria, but still um, with a lovely sort of nutty, slightly oatmeal um, texture to them. More cool um, climate though. Yes, mm -hmm. a little bit a little bit cooler, much more rain as well. So they don't have to worry so much about sort of the drought vintages uh, and also do some slightly cooler climate red wines. Um, so Cullen, one of my favourite Margaret River producers, um, do these gorgeous Bordeaux blends, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, um, which are so sort of precise. You know, the fruit flavours really beautifully clear and yet they age quite happily for 20 years or more. Mm. You also have um, Lewin. Uh, they do their art series, most famous their Chardonnay, but they do a fantastic Riesling, Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon as well. And they're very precise, uh, very age-worthy wines. You know, we've covered many of those from South Australia. Um, Pusey Vale, one of my favourite Rieslings. Yeah. Hewitson, Dean Hewitson makes incredible wines in the mm -hmm. Barossa, uh, which are, for me, they've got all of the 
characteristics you would expect from a warm climate wine, but without the very heavy alcohol, which is He makes fantastic. our um, Berry's own Shiraz, which I think is absolutely fantastic because it's not over the top, big, rich Shiraz. It's got the weight to it, but it's the idea that all Australian wine is big, heavy, sort of, you need a big piece of meat to, to have with it. Totally on its head, it's... Um, it, it's smooth, it's supple, it's got weight to it, but it, you know it's it's delicious by itself and 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 so sort of food food friendly as well. In Tasmania, I already touched on Toll Puddle. You know, seek them out. The production quantities are small, but really well well worth seeking out. And an honourable mention, although mm-hmm. this is a wine podcast, to Sullivan's Cove, who make probably the best whiskey in the world mm. in Tasmania. So if you're loading up your cellar with Australian goodies, make sure you get um, get a bottle of that in there as well. And you've actually spoken before about the issues um, that the Australian wine industry is facing when it comes to exporting. So what's currently happening on the market and what opportunities are there for European collectors? So I realise that this might not seem like the most riveting topic, but personally, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Mm. Sometimes we can get so carried away thinking about how delicious the wines are that we forget to consider how they get here. Mm-hmm. And until very recently, uh, China was Australia's biggest export market by a very long way for wine. They were exporting over a billion dollars worth of wine there a year, accounting wow. for about 40% of their wine production. So huge, huge export market. In March last year, China imposed tariffs of between about 100 to 220% on Australian wines. And in one fell swoop, Australian wine exports went to almost zero to China. So you've got a situation now where a lot of producers are finding that the market they used to sell to, you know, is no longer um, welcoming to them. And so they're starting Mm. to think about other ways to sell their wine. Some producers are looking at different markets. They're focusing more on the US. They're focusing more on markets closer to home, whether it's Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, mm-hmm. and others are looking to Europe. But I would say it's it's incumbent on anyone who enjoys good Australian wine, mm-hmm. really fine wine, to support these producers. Do your bit, yeah. seek them out, here, here. and yeah. try and help to fill a little bit of that gap that has been created. So just to round things up, Seb, what would you say is the biggest misconception people have about Australian wine? I'd say that there's such variety customers might not expect and, mm-hmm. and so much of the, of the wine that comes out of Australia is, is really quality driven. Mm. There's a style of wine that you really enjoy and that you've perhaps got from France, Germany, mm. Italy. You will find something like that, but also something different from Australia as well. There's something for everyone, I'd say. Well, Seb, Barbara, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for sharing your stories and knowledge in our historic home. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to browse the producers mentioned in today's podcast and see what wines we have available, visit bbr.com forward slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your fine wine collection with Berry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com forward slash collecting. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We hope to welcome you back soon. But until then, thank you again for listening to this episode of Drinking Well.